This is a crowd podcast. Again, when the going gets tough, do the tough get going? Has there been any fights where you're on the edge of your seat because... To his credit, Matthew said, I came to fight. So how did you wind up in, in that job? Like, how do you become the golden boy matchmaker? You can't teach heart. Let's get on with it. I'm George. He's Deck. Hello. It's the George Groves Boxing Club. Hello, Deck. Hello, George. How are you? I am brilliant. I had a wonderful weekend. Yeah, Friday night I was in Croydon. I was with Craig Slater, now presents Formula One on Sky, but I know him from way back in the day, traveling the world of him when we, I was sort of like in the, the haymaker days, you know? So it was great to see Craig Friday. We had a show down in Croydon. And then Sunday, I was in the boxing gym twice, and I was uh, at West London Boxing Academy teaching some fine students about boxing. And loads of them said they're big fans of the pod. Loved the Journeyman episode. So um, shout out Poochie. Shout out Poochie every time. I did see you on Instagram on the pads, and I was thinking, when can I go on the pads? I want you to hold the pads for me. Well, we got a live show coming up, so I think that, that'd be the place to do it, mate. That's the place to start. Yeah, that's a good... Uh incentive to get fit in fact actually i've been running again george signed up for a half marathon again next year you know most people at this point they got this they've done this sort of pre-summer shred Mm -hmm. they've had their holiday and then they're like oh fuck this have a couple of months off Mm -hmm. and then you end up at christmas going how am i this heavy well not this year george no got till april it's very important why not it's berlin where um, my dear old dad, God rest his soul, is buried. So I have to get a PB at Berlin. It's the flattest one in Europe. So cheers, dad. He sorted me out there. The flattest half marathon, the flattest marathon in Europe. So everyone always wants to do it because you get your PBs. So I'm saying it, speaking it into existence, PB is pending. However, based on what I did in Prague, I'm going to have to really sort it out for Berlin. So that's why I'm starting early. So I'm back on Strava. So all the listeners who are on Strava... And then maybe lacking a bit of motivation, get back running. Let's get the Shreds group fired up again. And then we'll all be super fit for January when we do um, when we do our next Shreds series. Uh, and we'll be absolutely wiping the floor with the competition. I'll tell you what, we have had some listener interaction this week. Oh-ho. I love it. From definitely an ECM, Dave Mitchell. He's saying that Sky are now reporting that Smith, so that's Liam Smith, might need a back op following the Eubank fight. Who do you guys think should be responsible, if anyone, for thinking about the fans here? We were sold a false product. I don't blame Smith. He was probably getting a career-high payday and needed it to sell pay-per-views. Just feel like people were slightly conned into paying 20 quid for something that was falsely advertised. Okay, I know you're going to have a view on this, George. Like, it's not the first and it won't be the last and it's definitely not the, the worst case of being um, sold the dream, you know. I think we knew Smith had problems in camp because he had postponed. So we'd done his very best. And essentially, you have to fight at some point. You have to fight. And you'll always back yourself to be fit enough to fight. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are fighters and fights in particular, promotions, managers, know when their fighter is totally unfit and stands zero chance of winning. But... We sold it anyway. But the truth of the matter is, rarely is a fighter fully fit. And sometimes you just don't know until fight night. He might be thinking, I'm not quite 100%, but maybe Eubank won't be either. And I'm going to go in there and do a job and win. And he's probably boxed with problems before in the past and overcome them on the night. Uh, and maybe fought the same this time. So I'm, I'm going to sort of defend Smith in this regard. But at the same time, if he was knackered, then... He's fucked. I mean, I've fought semi-mo... Like people say, oh, you fought Callum Smith, the brother, uh, with, you know, how was the shoulder? It wasn't a, It wasn't the same, was it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> but I went into that fight thinking I'm going to do him. I never went in there just to make up the numbers, get bashed up and beat, you know? i got a question for you, George. I remember there was a massive scream-up after Mayweather-Pacquiao, which obviously the richest fight in history of boxing. And then it came out afterwards that Manny Pacquiao performed so poorly or he got beaten so widely because he had this bad shoulder injury and he'd need an injection and it. it was like a serious injury. So he was never fit and he was never going to really give Mayweather any problems because he was unfit. And I remember there being a thing at the time saying that, I don't know if this is true, if you ever had to do this, but you have to sign like a contract with the commission, I guess with the Nevada State Athletic Commission, because the fight was in Las Vegas, saying I'm fully fit, There, I have no injuries, I'm good to go. 
And then obviously that was a breach of contract that he had this shoulder problem. Did that, was there anything like that in the UK with, with the British Boxing Board of Control where you have to pledge that you're fit, vow that you're fit before you have a fight and to all intents and purposes, take people's money. Maybe when you sign the, sign the bout agreement, it's in there somewhere. The board will encourage you not to lie about your health because they don't want you to have a serious injury. So if, you, if you're getting bad headaches fight week, they want you to know. They, you know if you tell someone that, they're 100% going to pull the fight. Fighters who don't want the fight pulled might be keeping that to themselves. Ultimately, we want to see the fights and you just hope that an injury or something is not effective. Also, that's a tough question for you, George, because yeah, you had this. Bad shoulder in your last fight, so uh, you can't cane Liam Smith here. I've got another question, George. This is an email from Johnny Lee Deval. Been religiously listening for a while now. Big question here for George. I've watched your full fight with Badu Jack three times now. I don't know if he means three times today or three times his life. And scoring round by round. I had you up 7-5 by the end of the fight. How well do you think you did in this fight because it was so razor close and what would have been the next fight after if you did get the nod on the decision? Keep it up, boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was demoralised. The worst defeat I had and I watched it back straight away when I got back to the UK. Um, I think I fought a one. If I turn around to people and say, I won that fight, I won that fight, I reckon there have been some hardcore Saint fans that would be backing me but I would have become a bit of a laughing stock because the vast majority of people would have said, it was tight. could have gone either way. I thought you won, but you ain't got enough to scream about. And that's kind of how I saw it. I thought I won a few bouts, but not nowhere near enough to scream about it. Going away, I'm fighting Badu Jack, who's a champion on a Mayweather card. He's a Mayweather fighter out in the States. And I get dropped in the first round. Uh, American judges who, like, they're used to that sort of aggression. I can't remember the exact scorecards, but you can get... There was a copy of them. I did see them, and I can't remember if there was a lot of variation between the three judges on particular rounds. What would have been the next fight after if you did get the nod on the decision? We've spoken about what might have happened if you beat beaten Froch, etc. What would have been the, the score if, you, if you'd if you left Vegas with the WBC belt that time? I would have looked for a James Egal unification fight. Mm. tried to have made mega mega money and then beat James Egal and then for what's next is there any more mega fights and if there ain't I would have don't know what would have done Degal would have made sense so Badger Jack fucked up that as well okay well we've actually got an episode to speak about George and you were there that night at the MGM Grand Garden Arena so was I one man who's been there countless times and in all the big venues across Las Vegas and across America and across the world is today's guest, George. Who have we got? We have none other than the brilliant Robert Diaz. He's come on and he's going to talk to us about being a matchmaker in boxing. Arguably the best matchmaker of his time. Yeah, I can't wait for this one. Matchmaking's been on the list. I think a lot of our newer fans will be like, what the hell is a matchmaker? And I think a lot of people inside boxing might not quite understand what these guys do. I know I certainly don't and didn't. It's a skill, it's an art, and there's no one better in the game to t- tell us about it than Robert Diaz. Should we get him in? Let's get him in, Deck. Today, Declan, we have a matchmaker in the club. Someone who's helped put some of the biggest fights together in the world is, of course, Robert Diaz. Robert, thanks for coming on the show, pal. Thanks for joining the club. You're actually now in the George Groves Boxing Club. You've got some actual vintage attire on. I don't. I got one of them jumpers somewhere, but you've managed to keep yours, and it's in pristine condition as well. It's glowing. It's white. I'm very honored. Thank you, George. Thank you, Declan, to to have me on. It's it's an honor. It's a pleasure, and I wouldn't have not been able to pull this out, get it washed, get it ready and clean. <laughs> For your podcast, and yes, you gave me this many years ago, and I keep it to this day with a lot of pride and honor. Robert, just before we get into it as well, remind me if this is right or wrong, but I think Robert Diaz was taken down by Adam Booth to Brent Town Hall, uh, circular maybe 2008, to watch the Northwest Divs of the London ABAs. I was I boxed that night, I won, 
And then there was whispers, all the golden, boy, golden boys in the room, golden boys in the room. And then uh, off the back of that, my kickboxing coach and he got a bunch of his mates stood up and queued up for an autograph with me. And I was like, Jay, what, what are you doing? And he's like, golden boys over there. I want you to look really popular. <laughs> like, <laughs> so you were queuing up out the door to, to get a picture with his kid. Well, that is exactly true. I, I had a meeting with Adam Booth on that particular night. You were fighting and I'll give you a funny story on that. Obviously, I had known Ricky Hatton, been in Manchester, seen the love he had from all his fans. I show up to this amateur show and all your fans start singing, there's only one George Groves. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's Ricky's song. Why are they singing Ricky's song, right? I didn't know at the time that it was applied to whoever the fans were there to cheer for, Wayne Rooney. I later heard it for Wayne Rooney. I like but the very first time I heard it, that it wasn't a Ricky Hatton, it was a George Groves. And I was like, wait a minute, that's Ricky's song. They can't use that. And I was very impressed even that day, George, with you on how mature, I mean, obviously you had a pedigree in the amateurs. I'm very honored and proud to say I saw George Grove in possibly what could have been one of your last amateur fights, if not the last one. But, but I was there and uh, it was a great, great night. What do you look for in a fighter then? You being the matchmaker, I want to know from the start, like it, if you're eyeing up prospects, will you go visit them in the amateurs then? Or do people send you tapes? Did you used to get pestered and prodded and asked questions from trainers and parents and club you know, amateur trainers? You see it in all shapes, sizes, and forms. I mean, there's there's people that go to the amateur programs, go to the gyms. The closer the that you can be from the beginning, the better. However, we got so busy at Golden Boy at the time that I would just get a lot of DVDs. Um, sometimes it was a DVD of a guy looking in the mirror, just like, look, I'm, I'm the next Tyson. And, <laughs> uh, okay, next. But every once in a while, and, and this is going back from the get-go, I mean, at the beginning when there was DVDs, then obviously it started getting smoother with links and all, but you would see so much. I mean, I'm talking about you would get on a trip, I'd take a bunch of DVDs with me and, and watch over the days that I was at a fight and say, okay, disregard, disregard, disregard. Wait a minute, there's a standout here. And, and then you look into it more, what's the pedigree, what's the amateurs. But a lot of times it's hit and miss. You could be in the amateur program too long. And then when you go into the pros, you have that burnout. You don't always focus on he's a 15-time national champion or he's won so many amateur fights. There's a fine line. There's some kids that I, I did sign uh, an example, Omar Figueroa. I was criticized when I signed him because he wasn't even at a national level, much less, he wasn't even at a state level. Why sign him when there was so many other kids, state level or na national level, that were much better? But I saw something that you can't teach in Omar, and that was just that grit. You can teach how to stand, you can teach the jab, you can, but you can't teach the outside the ring qualities, which a connection with that crowd or you can't teach heart. It might seem like an obvious question, but what does a matchmaker do? Because it's not just making the fights. You've just explained that there's a lot more to it. So what's the day job when you're a matchmaker? Every day is different. And that could be good and bad. It's not a glorified position. As a trainer, your fighter wins, there's glory. As a manager, your fighter wins, there's glory. There's, you know, because you, you somewhat take that credit. As a matchmaker, when the fighter wins, there's very little credit. I mean, my pat in the back wasn't from outside of the fighter or the audience. If the audience said, wow, and you would hear it, not come up to you and say, hey, what a great fight. Thank you, Mr. Matchmaker. No, but you'd hear it when they're leaving Man, what a great fight. But as a matchmaker, the day-to-day -day job is going in there, putting the cards together. I always put my position is I'm a fan because I love boxing. I've, I, I, it's a passion. Would I pay to watch this fight? And if I'd pay as a fan, the majority are going to say, yeah, you know what? That's a good fight. I'd love to watch it. You want to make fan-friendly fights. At the same time, you're building for your promotional company. It's not just put them in wars at all times. For instance... I always believed in stepping up, but not too fast. And, and, and every individual is different. So that's where you have to go off that individual's last performance, stepping it up gradually. But after every few fights, it's test time again. Deontay Wilder was his 11th or 12th fight. We're out in Indio, California. He was obviously undefeated every fight by knockout. 
and I put him in with an opponent, Harold Sconiers, who was a veteran. Another matchmaker promoter comes up to me at the weigh-in and says, hey, the card looks solid. It looks good. But what's up with that fight? Basically saying that's that's a mismatch. I remember telling him, you know, I'm okay with every other fight, including the one between us, because it was one promoter, Golden Boy against another promoter. He had his fight against our fighter. I said, I'm comfortable and, and confident that we're going to win every other fight. However, this one has me worried. Deontay got dropped. He was knocked down and hurt pretty bad. I think it was like the second round. And I all I remember is thinking, oh my goodness, it's over. The bronze medalist, it's done. Oscar hadn't even arrived into the building. And I'm like already coming <laughs> up with the excuse. How am I going to tell him that I matched him up too tough? <laughs> From that point, I made it that said, I can't match him with somebody that hits too hard because his chin may be questionable. And, and, and you guys can remember there was a lot of criticism. Oh, he's not fighting anybody. Look at the, you know, he's fighting. And I said, I don't care. And, I, and we had talked as a team, look, our goal is to fight for the world title and, and, and win the world title. Kept them away for us. You know, I, I knew there was going to be a point where he's going to have, if a Klitschko fight would have happened, if, if one of the big fights would have happened, well, you take it but it wasn't going to be unnecessary. He was the first American to bring back the title back to the U.S. when he finally fought for the world title against Avern and won it. You can build 20-0, 20 knockouts all in the first round. You can build that. If there's money behind it, you can do it. But what happens when that 20-0, 20 wins, 20 knockouts fights the real opponent for the first time and that guy hits back? I always said, I'm not here to build pretty records. I want to build champions. And if that means 18 and two, the day they fight for the world title, but we're going to win it, then it was all good because that's where you really see the character, the personality and what the fighters built up, not off the wins. How often do you face fighters or maybe their trainers or managers who are just reluctant for you to push them on? And you're like, listen, kid, if you don't have a, an acid test, you're going to get too far down the line and you're not going to be ready. So would that happen a lot for you in your matchmaking? And then ultimately, was that be a little bit more uh, pressure? Because you're telling this kid, come on, you've got to move on now. You've got to step up. And then you don't want them to crumble or fold. Absolutely. That's one of the hurdles. You hear a lot of fans at times say, well, it, it, they should make this fight against this guy. Most of the time we've thought about that too, and it's a great fight. But the hurdles are managers, trainers, husbands, wives, fathers, either nerves, not being there, the scared, the, fr the, 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 the being afraid of losing. But most of the time, George, it's that job security. If, if the fighter loses, what if the trainer gets cut? If the trainer gets cut, that percentage is gone. If, if the fighter loses, uh, the manager stops making that instead of building up to money, knowing that most of the time the contract reads minimums don't apply. And then you take that fall. The promoter doesn't want their fighter to lose. As a promoter, your obligation is, yes, build a fighter. Business-wise, let's make a world champion. Not all the times are they going to be world champions. Today, again, it's easier because there's more titles. So you don't want your fighter to get defeated, but it is a business. And if you want to sell seats and you want to get the TV attraction and the networks attracted, they have to be competitive fights. Tell us about the about the process then. So say you've got a date, then do you make the main event first and then see what money you've got left and make the undercard? Do you do the whole thing? Do you? Yeah, the main event's what sells the, the actual event. That's what gets you the date. For instance, on the Cinco de Mayo back in the day it was, okay, Canelo Alvarez, who do you build under Canelo? Well, you want to get a lot of your young potential stars to start getting some exposure. Um, you want to put them on the undercard because you want them to see what a big, big event is like. Do they crumble? Do they like get, again, do they get stage fright? Because at four or six rounds to get that kind of experience, eventually you're hoping that once they make it to the top, they're comfortable in the big stage. Yes, they would give you a budget. Um, they'd come over and say, okay, here's your budget for the undercard. Put some fights together. And then you determine on who deserves that exposure, who's been making weight, who's been earning that moment, that spot, and who can eventually be built underneath the star to eventually become and get his own dates. And you'll see that through the years with how we did it with 
Mayweather was the main event. Canelo was coming up under him. And then Canelo was the main event. And then we started putting like the Virgil Ortiz or the Ryan Garcia, or, you know, Jojo Diaz, the young crop coming up underneath them to eventually expand out and get their own dates. I remember, Robert, it was a time you I, I met you in London at David Hayes Gym. And I think you'd just signed Amir Khan and Golden Boy had just signed Danny Garcia. They were about to fight. I don't know if they had a fight beforehand or after and not many people in the uk knew much about danny garcia i remember you coming again he's pretty good and he throws a good left hook and then obviously later on we see that left hook and we're like oh wow you'd also signed canelo alvarez and he was um i think the first fight he had with golden boy was against miguel cotto's brother or it was one of the first ones i was talking to you at the time but i don't know why you would have been in the uk if the fight was on there and then it must have been just after and obviously canelo gets caught in that in that fight i think he might even i don't think he goes down but he gets caught and you're like yeah we think we're on to a winner signing this ginger mexican who can fight but ultimately the matchmaking is tough and risky. Has there been any fights where you're on the edge of your seat because it could all be going down the toilet because, I don't know, something's just gone wrong? Look, with Danny Garcia, very similar to Canelo, it was always easy to matchmake. They never turned down opponents. Never turned down opponents. And that's that's a matchmaker's dream, a, a fighter or a team that's like, yeah, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. One thing with Danny that I always say is, and it was always great to work with is, even in the fights that you're like, okay, he has it very tough, Danny's will to win. I'm not saying he's not talented. Obviously, he's he's done very, very good. There wasn't anything really extra like wow to his game. A lot of that left hook and a right overhand, a lot of the times was the same thing. So you knew as an opponent what could be coming, but you didn't know his will to win. And Danny had a tremendous will to win. And that's what kept them going and going and going and beating guys that maybe at times you thought, ah, this one's going to be real tough. And Canelo, I remember that day when he got hurt in the first round, there was like a little saying out there where uh, the golden boy curse, the golden boy curse, like every fighter that signed with golden boy in the first fight would get beat. You know, Barrera signs with golden boy gets beat by Manny Pacquiao. That was still fresh in at this time. Now I'm working for golden boy, not with Barrera, but Canelo's on. He had already fought for Golden Boy. Uh, he fought his first fight at here in California. But this was like his big event. I think it was a Mayweather was the main event. And Canelo was the co-main event. And yeah, Cotto rocks him. And I can remember just sitting back going, the Golden Boy curse. Oh, my God. <laughs> here we go again. You know, because there was a lot of expectation coming early on from Canelo. Number one, he didn't look like your typical Mexican. I mean, he looked more Irish or European than he does Mexican. And he didn't fight like the majority of the Mexican style, like let's go toe to toe and hit me to be hit. He countered more. In fact, Canelo is a counter puncher. Now, there was many, many times where I was on the edge of the seat and, and thinking, oh my goodness, we went a little too aggressive this time. Um, one, Victor Ortiz against Maidana. You know, Victor Ortiz against Maidana was a fight that Victor was coming on as the next big thing. Victor was very, very talented in the way he moved. I mean, he had like a cat type style movement. Again, when the going gets tough, do the tough get going? And we saw it throughout his career. There was one fight where it surprised me really because he got up after a couple knockdowns, went to war with Andre Berto the first fight. And that was like, okay, this is the victor that that we've been waiting for, but it was a one-off. But it happens. It happened on the other times. Then there was fights where, all right, let's test this kid and see what he really has to great surprise. One of those type of fighters that maybe rose to the occasion as the opponents got tougher and then surprised you with, with a win. That's the beauty of, of the matchmaking. I mean, I'm not going to put a, a counterpuncher against another counterpuncher and then see who wants to be the prettier one. However, if you put two aggressive guys in there that search for the knockout, most of the time you're going to get a barn burner and the fans are going to leave happy. And I say most of the time because, again, sometimes it's luck. Sometimes that boxer or that puncher decides, oh, today I want to box. I don't want to take a punch. And then they come out and the other guy says, yeah, today I want to, I want to. And then it's like, wait a minute, these guys are two knockout artists. Why are they all of a sudden boxing? Maybe they respect each other. And so the stars have to align. It's, a lot of times it's luck. George can attest to this. There's never a perfect camp. 
So how did you wind up in in that job? Like, how did you become the Golden Boy matchmaker? I was very fortunate to have met one of my heroes at a mall during Christmas shopping, and that's Marco Antonio Barrera. Well, back in the day, there was no cameras uh, on the phone, so I couldn't get a picture. And I ran around the mall trying to get a something for him to autograph. I've always been very peculiar on what's going to be autographed, depending on what the individual does. So if it's a boxer, it had to be boxing related. I couldn't pull out a, a napkin and say, can you sign this? I, I had to find something. And unfortunately, there was nothing at the mall. Unfortunately and fortunately, because maybe if I would have got the autograph, end of story. That's it. I got an autograph glove of Barrera. Because I couldn't find anything, I give him my address. I, I, I Like a stalker, <laughs> 30, 40 minutes later, and I see him again. Hey, Barrera, if I give you my address, would you mind sending me something autograph? Again, I'm a big fan. And he was coming off losing his title. He was coming off the loss to Junior Jones. So I was, you know, like, keep your head up. You're one of the best. I'm, I'm a big fan. And he said, yeah, give me your address. A few weeks later, I get a package in the mail. And to be honest, I mean, it makes all the big, huge difference to a fan. And obviously, you got to understand that they can't be sending packages to everybody that comes up to them. But it meant a lot. And a couple years later, he's going to fight in California. I show up. He sees me. He doesn't remember my name. Two years have passed. And he says, San Diego, right? And I said, yeah. Come in the back with me. I'll introduce you to the team. Let's hang out in the dressing room. As a fan, George, think of it. They'll be like, wow. So I'm in the back with Barrera. He, they give me a credential. Why don't you shoot pictures today? Go hang out. Have fun. This is December of 99. Soon as the fight's over, they announce the first Eric Morales fight. Now, I lived in San Diego, 15 minutes away from where Morales is born and raised, Tijuana. I go to Barrera and his team and I said, I really want to be there for that fight. I admired both fighters. I really liked both fighters. But when it came down to they're fighting each other, it was like, wow, it's a hard pick. Morales was the big fan favorite. And I stuck with Barrera. 10 years later, he goes on and fights and then moves on to leave his current promoter and manager. I'm just a fan, friend of his now by this time, carrying the flag, going up to camp, spending time with him, taking him videos of who he's going to fight. We bonded. We made a good relationship. And then he goes to Golden Boy, who's just starting out. And he calls me one day and he says, hey, I'm dropping my old promotion and I'm splitting from them and uh, want to know if you want to continue with me. And I said, of course, you're the fighter. I mean, I had gotten into a good relationship with his former promoter and, and management. So he says, OK, come over with me to Golden Boy. I didn't know this at the time, but he had already signed a contract, done the deal, everything. And of course, again, remember, I'm just a friend that carries the flag when he's in town, drives him around. And he already has a fight done with them to fight. He's going to head up to camp. He says, why don't you come up to camp with me? Uh, we're going to train. We're going to get ready. And we're fighting Manny Pacquiao. He then starts telling me in camp, go down, talk to Golden Boy, see about this, see about that. And he loses the first fight. And I'm thinking, man, they're going to cut him. They're going to cut him. It's done. One hit wonder. And that's it. It's over. And then he tells me, start negotiating my fights with Golden Boy. Remember, I'm a fan. I've never worked with a fighter. I've been with him now through a whole camp, eight weeks, nine weeks, seeing what the sacrifice is, really, really getting to admire the sacrifices the fighters really do. Because as a fan, I'm watching them on TV perform. Why I was scared, because eventually, when he first told me, you start negotiating it, I'd never done that. And I said, what if I ruin this guy's career? I mean, it's not like I got a four-rounder, which would still be bad. And he's putting all his trust in my hands. And we had a great run at Golden Boy. He won the world title once again, became a three-division world champion, actually had a better second chapter. There was fights that I did turn down. That gave me, at least in Golden Boy's eyes, okay, this guy understands the boxing and the matchmaking. So when Marco pretty much retires, I get the call from current president, Eric Gomez, and says, look, the company's growing. We know you here at the company. You're, you're good to work with. You know what you're doing. We'd like to offer you a job. There was another couple sleepless nights because I haven't done, I mean, I, one thing was to do it for, for Marco, which was pretty much easy because he's already at the high level. And I said, what's my duties? What it, sign fighters. You have a good eye for talent. And help me matchmake. You're going to be my assistant. When you was working with Barrera and you said you'd be negotiating his fights, would he say, right, here's the, the opponent I want, go and get it? Or was you actually already there and then looking and scoping out opponents for him and then brokering a deal with Golden Boy or whoever he was um, liaising with there? So was you taking that much of a, of a, of a role, really, at that point? Yes, I did take the role. Uh, he gave me the, the trust. And I would go in and talk to Golden Boy. And what they would do is they'd give me back. It was back in the day when HBO 
and HBO would say, okay, here's the date. Here's two or three possible opponents that we would accept. It was done a little bit different than it is today where promoters are now submitting names. At that point, I'd go in, sit down with Golden Boy and they'd say, look, most of the time it was three names. I said, okay, I'll get back to you. And it was, it was, you know, it wasn't difficult, but it was like going back and forth. So I would take the two or three names back to the team and they would ask, what do you think? And I'd give my opinion. And most of the time it was, we were all obviously on the same page and come back and say, okay, we like this opponent and we're ready to go. George boxed on a Golden Boy show, right? And that, this was against Francisco, or was it two? He fought on two. He fought in California, I remember, in San Jose. That was the first time. And then he fought in Vegas, if I'm not mistaken, under Marquez and Juan Diaz, number two. Yeah, so that was first, Robert. That was first. That was quite early on in my career. That was like a eight-rounder or something. Exactly what you said with how HBO did it. You gave us like three, three opponents um, to pick one from. Uh, one of them was Badu Jack, who I ended up fighting in Vegas years later. And that's the difference, I think, Robert, between fighters in the UK and fighters in the States. So fighters in the States have it a little bit tougher. There's more fighters out there. They end up getting matched together and you either make it through or you don't. So yeah, Badu Jack came in. Francisco Sierra was another name. He was He had a good record. He had maybe one or two losses on his record, but he was really big for the weight. And that was on the undercard of, I think, I think Robert Victor Guerrero. Ortiz and Robert Guerrero and James Kirkland. I think it was like that, like a three, like future star type card. And I remember you coming on in San Jose. How did that, what's the genesis of that then? So George Groves is a you know contender, but over in London, who signed with, Matt, with Haymakers, I assume at that point. How does it happen that you go, oh, we'll get George, I think we'll get George Gross for this undercard. That would be good. I had a great relationship with Adam Booth and David Hay. When David Hay knocked out Macronelli, Richard Schaefer, who ran the company at the time, comes over to me and says, I had the relationship. I brought Ricky Hatton over to Golden Boy. So he says, hey, do you know this David Hay? And I had met David at Ricky's gym, but I didn't know him. And I said, yeah, yeah, I saw him fight this weekend. He says, can't make contact. I'd want to sign him. And a great friend of mine, Owen, real, real good friend says, hey, Robert, I know Adam. I'll put you in contact with him. That's when I went out to London, met with Adam. Then eventually we went out that night to, to see George fight. And we set up a meeting with David and we signed David to a co-promotional deal with Golden Boy a week later. I think Ricky Hatton was actually fighting uh, his return, his homecoming in Manchester and Oscar and Richard and everybody, Adam and David all got together and, and did uh, the announcement. But because of that relationship, when Haymaker gets started, there was always talks in cross-promoting and bringing some of the young talent from the UK over to Golden Boy cards. Eventually, there was the TV deal, George. You remember uh, Satanta, I think, closing shop. And then a lot of the fighters under Haymaker were released or didn't get going. But George stuck through and obviously, uh, you know, did his his own history. But because he kept going and was very talented, it was a no-brainer to bring him out to a couple shows. I did the same thing with Ricky. At one point, uh, Ricky Hatton asked me if I could put on Anthony Crolla. Years, years before Anthony, you know, obviously won the title and everything. And I said, no problem. Absolutely. Love to. Always had a great relationship. Anthony and Scott Quigg are great, great friends to this day. And I put on Anthony against, uh, let's say, like a C level. If he hears me, he's going to say, Robert, he wasn't C, he was A. <laughs> but even though his record wasn't great, it was a veteran, it was an experienced fighter. And I remember going like, oh, no, what am I going <laughs> to tell Ricky? You know, he sends me his young prospect just for a hey, little tune-up. You get even more careful when it's you're responsible. And I had a very, very good, to this date, very close relationship with the Hattons. And, you know, imagine picking up the call, phone and say, hey, pal, sorry, but your guy got beat. It was tough, but Anthony pulled it off. And uh, I was like, okay, you know what? I can't, I can't have too many more nights of this. One that's very, comes to mind a lot is, Matthew Hatton and Canelo. When, when Matthew called me and said, look, Robert, if a big fight comes up, I need you to call me directly. Don't worry about calling Rick. Don't worry about calling my dad. Call me directly. The Canelo fight happens. I call him, get the fight done. Now it's fight week. Ricky was actually at Canelo's uh, open workout, sees him training, and somebody's right next to Ricky telling him, why did you even accept this fight? Why'd you this? Why'd you that? Look how big this guy is. Look how strong he is. Look, 
So now Ricky's having this like, who made this fight? And they tell him Robert Diaz did. So I'm walking into wildcard, getting ready to welcome Ricky and Matthew. And, and they tell me, hey, pal, uh, somebody came out and told me, uh, not a good idea that you're here. So when the weigh-in comes, if you guys recall, Canelo misses weight. That was the first and the only time he's missed weight in his career. And that's where I'm thinking, okay, this, this was a blessing. Hey, Matt, you should pull out now. Rick, look, pull out, you know. And they're like, Matthew said no. And I remember even Ricky said, look, I'll pay you your purse. Let's go home. This guy's not making weight. He's too big. Let's go. And Matthew said no. To his credit, Matthew said, I came to fight. All the fight, I'm nervous because, again, I'm very close with the Hattons, the family. What if he gets knocked out? What if he gets beat up? What if he gets stopped? Uh, Ricky's never going to talk to me. Is Matthew going to talk? I mean, man, what did I, why, why do I do this? Matthew comes out with his head up. You know, yes, he he was defeated, but then you end up seeing who Canelo ends up being years later, and you could say, hold your head up and say, look, I was one of the toughest ones that ever gave him a fight. And that next day, we were all at my house doing a barbecue, having fun. Ricky was okay again and everything. <laughs> we, were, we were cool again, but those are the type of moments that you, you know, you, you stress. Robert, can I ask, is there a fighter in particular who stands out as someone who you think you did your most prestigious matchmaking for? Maybe you guided them from newbie pro to a world title. And also, is there a standout fight that you made that is like where it would be your calling card? You put it on your business card and say, look, this is the fight I made. It might be someone who was an underdog, but you knew they're the capability of winning or just someone who was involved in a mega, mega fight, something like that. Does any of them stand out to you? One of the ones that I'm really proud of, and, and people might say, you know, disagree, are Jorge Linares. Matched him for the lightweight title against Antonio DeMarco. That was probably one of Jorge's best performances. I mean, he looked amazing that night. Tenth round, he gets stopped on cuts. Referee stops fighting, he loses. You know, it might confuse people. Wait a minute, that was the best ever and he lost. Yes, he was winning nine rounds to one, got cut and stopped. Showtime wanted to do the rematch. I told him, no problem, let's do the rematch. Let me just get Jorge one win. I take him to Mexico and he gets knocked out in the second round. So think about right there, you know, like second guessing your work. And it's like, oh my God, rematch is gone. Gold, uh, my bosses at Golden Boy came over to me and said, he's done, he's over with. I've known Jorge very close to the family. I've known him since he was 17 years old. This was his third, uh, it was his attempt to win the third division. And I went against Golden Boy. I went against my bosses. In other words, uh, Richard had told me to release him. And I said, no, I think the best is yet to come. And it was very difficult. My, my job is obviously to bring him back. But when I asked at one point is, what's our budget to put him on an undercard? Just come back, fight a, a, a win. $10,000. I'm going to go to my co-promoter, Mr. Honda, who I have tremendous respect and love for. And how am I going to go to Jorge and say, you're going to fight for like five grand? So I'm thinking, 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 what am I going to do? What am I going to do? There was really no room for him on the card, but it was like, all right, if you want to put him on, get him a win, we could spend like $10,000 or $12,000 total for both sides. So I came up with a strategy. I came up, look, Jorge, we're going to give you five now and then five after the fight as, as, as training reimbursement or something. So Jorge ended up fighting for $10,000 that night. Um, he won by knockout. Why I pick him is because after the two defeats, Jorge went on a long stretch of comeback fights. If you look at his record, insignificant fights, uh, just wins against, you know, average level opponent. But it was just that I was seeing something in Jorge that just wasn't there yet. Eventually, it started coming back. Like I said, every fighter is different. The process is different. Some are faster, some are slower. Coming off back-to-back -back defeats, knockouts at that. But little by little, I mean, he went through training changes. He had gone with Freddie Roach because he wanted to be in the States. Gone back to Japan. Hooked up with Ismael Salas, who you know trained David Hay for a little bit. And then when I started seeing that confidence back, little by little by little, let's fight for the world title. We're ready. He wins it in Japan. Let's go on the road. Let's go to the UK and defend against Kevin Mitchell. Jorge had never been dropped. Well, even though he had now three division world champion, this is a fighter who had never made it to the 12th round. He either won by knockout or lost by knockout. Never made it to the 12th round. So that particular fight with Kevin Mitchell, his wife's in labor in the US, and I tell the whole team, nobody says nothing. I don't want Jorge's mind being distracted. I don't want him to know anything. 
Jorge gets dropped, and I'm thinking, okay, that's it. We lost. He gets up, and he wins by knockout. That was the very first time Jorge had ever got up from a knockdown and won by knockout. I get into the ring with his baby on the phone and Face on FaceTime, and I said, congratulations, you won, and you're a dad. We go back to the UK and fight our good friend, Anthony Krola. He wins. We have a rematch. We go back again, and he wins. Why Jorge? I mean, this is a kid who should have been retired according, should have been cut. And we make it all the way back up to New York and he drops Lomachenko. Up until the moment he got stopped by Lomachenko, the fight was a draw on all three scorecards. One had it for Lomachenko, one had it for Linares, one had a draw. Had Jorge stayed up on his feet, we would have had a draw on a fight that no, I mean, at the time Lomachenko couldn't be beat. So, that's why I say Jorge. Um, and the fight that I think stands out to me, it reminds me a lot of Rocky, is Pauli Malinaji going to the Ukraine and fighting Sajenko for the world title. And we get to the Ukraine against Sajenko, Ukrainian world champion, and Pauli's not a puncher. But the way the whole way about making that fight happened, talking to the promoter, he had lost the mandatory opponent, the mandatory and his promoter broke away. We're at a convention. I talked to the promoter. I said, look, let's make this fight. I can make it simple for you. I have what you want and you have what I need. And he's like, what's that? I said, I have a name for you that'll bring value to the your, your champion and to the card. And you have that opportunity for my fighter fight for a world title one last chance. And we came to an agreement, the fight happened. I kept telling them in the press conference, but a lot of it is mind games and sight games and everything. And Polly's always been a very confident fighter, but cards were totally against us. And it was like, don't worry, you know, once we beat you, we'll do the rematch. But it was a lot of mind games being said just to pr help promote, but also try to get into the, the mind of the, the Sejenko. All of a sudden, I see one round before it ended, Sejenko like not wanting to come out. And I yell at Polly, Polly, he's ready to quit. Jump on him, jump on him. Like if Polly was Mike Tyson, jump on him. <laughs> and next round, the bell rings. I, I remember the referee, Steve Smoger, may rest in peace, uh, say, okay, one more round. And Polly jumps on him and stops him. And everybody, you know, the corner, all the teams start jumping up and down. And I get in that ring and I said, guys, please settle down. I know you're happy. Congratulate. Take the celebration into the ring because you saw everybody from promotion to the arena just looking at you like, what just happened? It was just a lot of things that went on before that it was like, uh-oh, we won. That's great. But let's just get out of here. You know, let's just go. We want to go home. So it was like Rocky Balboa going over and beating, you know, Ivan Drago. <laughs>Every episode we do like a quiz of some description. We'll have, we'll kick it around a bit, like me and George and Ross and everyone is in the WhatsApp group for this show. We come up with an idea for a quiz, but this time George has just written a quiz on his own. I have no idea what the questions are, none of that. But um, George, what you got for us? Diaz, the whole world in his hands. This quiz is all about matchmaking from all over the world. I have a series of questions for both you and Deck. Uh-oh. And I wish you the very best of luck, right? Right, so essentially I think this quiz is about clever matchmaking. Trying to go England v USA, sort of a bit of a theme. Right, Deck, you're going to go first just because the way the, the things are printed, right? So Deck, first question is, Sheffield Junior Witter lost his WBC light weight title against Timothy Bradley in Nottingham back in 2008. But which American did he challenge the belt for two years prior? So, so that was 2006. <sighs> I can fucking see him. American 140. Yeah. It's not Randall Bailey. That's too late. Tell you what, he was he was 34, four and one at the time. Nah, I can't. It's not Randall Bailey, was it? That was le that was later. He didn't... Demarcus Chop. Oh, chop, fucking Chop Chop, of course. Oh. Ali Pali. Chop Chop. Oh. Right, Diaz. Your main man, Ricky Hatton, had some mega nights and huge fights in the USA, which included six world title fights against Pacquiao, Mayweather, and many more. But his first time fighting on US soil was in his second fight against Robert Alvarez. But which city did he fight in? I think it was New York, Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it was, yeah. Declan. Yes. Nebraska's Terence Crawford comes to the UK in 2014 yeah. to challenge Ricky Burns for his world title, becoming the WBO lightweight champion. 
but who is the only other American fighter to hold a win over the Scot? Beltran was a draw. And the Puerto Rican quit after broken his yeah. hands or something. Oh, fuck. Um, what was this? I'm, I'm trying to think. Where it was, was it? Was State it? Farm Arena. Omar Figueroa? Yeah. It's fucking, yes. And it's your guy. That's your guy, Robert. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe I didn't remember <laughs> that one. Right. Omar Figueroa. Right. That's 2 0. You get that. Shit. Yeah, he stole your point deck. Right. Diaz, Joe Calzaghe finishes off his career with two wins, both in the United States. One's against Roy Jones Jr., the other against Bernard Hopkins. But which American fighter had more wins on his record at the time of fighting Calzaghe? More wins on their record, it would be Roy Jones had more wins on his record than, than Hopkins. Oh, he's running away with that. 52 wins for Jones. Question number five. Former cruiserweight and heavyweight champion David Hay made his professional debut oh, at your call. His fourth outing was at the Rivermead Leisure Center in Reading before heading off to the US to fight where? Oh, Boxing Estate. Playboy Mansion. Yeah. 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 Well done. Thank fuck for that. Amir Khan's first win outside the UK came back in 2010 with a defense of his WBA super welterweight title. But who was he fighting? He got the title from an Eddie Hearn fighter. Ah, and he defended in America. I'll say Chino Maidana. Do you know why I think I know this? It was Paulie Malalaji. Yeah. Declan, back in 2013, James DeGale in his career boxes American Caleb Truax, yeah. Andre Durrell, and Brandon Gonzalez. But before those wins, he wins the WBC silver title against an American with a record of 22 3 1. Who is it? Is it Dyer Davis? Yeah, how'd you Come on! <laughs> Mate, I wow. told you, I was doing the fucking DeGale rounds back then. I did. I went yeah. to Bristol to cover him against Gevil Kachikan, mate. I know the ho his whole record. In 1963, <laughs> Cassius, <hell>. Cassius Clay <laughs> travels to UK to fight Henry Cooper. Clay gets dropped with a left hook in the fourth round, but what round does the fight get stopped? I believe it ended in the fifth. Yes. I think he's edged you out there, Glenn. Oh, is that the last one? Oh, shit, oh, I went it. first. Yeah, just, fuck. Yeah, he has. I think that 4-3. Well done, Robert. That was... I'll tell you, I've got a tiebreaker. Go on, let's do it anyway. Indiana's Reggie Stickland, right? Yeah. He holds the record for the most amount of professional losses on his record, <sighs> right? He did win 63 fights, though, and of those 14 came via KO. But can you tell me how many losses he accumulated? Closest wins. I'm going to go 250. 188. 276. Come losses. on! Oh, you got it! The way we got you, Robert, is because I bumped into you at ringside at Canelo Rider. And obviously you're not with Golden Boy anymore. What are you What are you up to these days? Are you making fights? What What's the days looking like? You know, um, in January, I parted ways with Golden Boy after 15 years. I think it's now time uh, to enjoy some time off. That's what I've been doing. Working with a couple teams here and there until something really catches me, you know, until the right call comes and and I'll think it over, evaluate it. And I'm going to be in boxing. I love boxing. I love working. I've enjoyed that. I've worked with the fighters. I work with the promoters. I believe now there could be a benefit to working now with fighters once again, Knowing the promotional side and, and, and really how it works to not just pick up the phone and say, I want more money. Really bring value to the promoter. It's let's show them that we deserve more, but making it to where that bridge gets to a happy medium. So it works for both sides. I think the next few years is going to be working with the fighters now more to, to help them achieve. One thing I enjoyed during the 15 years at the promotion is being very close with the fighters. Again, the days with Barrera being in camp taught me the sacrifices, the dieting, just being away from the family, all that solitude that they have to go through. Now learning the promotional side, that was fun and all, but at the end of the day, it's for the fighter. Any prospects, any fighters um, stateside who we should be keeping an eye out for in Britain? And even so, maybe is there any matchmakers, protégés that you've got going who we should keep an eye out for the future as well? Definitely. I mean, obviously, I'm excited with some of the fights. I think, I think, like I said earlier, that generation of the zero under the Mayweather. Look, all the young kids that came under Mayweather that wanted to emulate Mayweather because the zero and the money and the cars and that. 
I think that's going to fade out little by little and fighters are going to start. I want to fight the best and I want to go back to the era that we love boxing from. And, you know, that's maybe that new group that's coming out with Canelo, who's fought everybody that he's been able to face and is willing to dare and fight everybody. Virgil Ortiz is a kid that I've been high on from the get go. Very quiet, very disciplined. And I think that's a kid to keep an eye on for the future because he's he's the real deal. He is the real deal. And He's disciplined, which again, discipline and talent mixed in one, you have a hell of a fighter. And I think that's what we'll see. When I was in Dublin, I saw a lot of talent. Um, there's a kid that Ricky Hatton trains, McGinty. Very TV friendly, gritty, hurt his hand, kept going. You, you wouldn't know that he hurt his hand, kept going and fighting. And I think he's somebody to keep an eye on because look, he has the Ricky Hatton uh, school and, 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 and discipline inside that gym and ring. And the kid has, uh, in the ring, in the, the discipline inside the gym, the kid has that extra, that silent killer. He barely talks. In, in the few hours that I spent with him, he's very quiet. And that's the ones to be careful with. We need one more thing from you, Robert. And that is, and I reckon that you must have thought of this before. So we have a playlist on Spotify where everyone who comes on gives us their ring walk song, you know, their hypothetical ring walk song or, or a tune that gets them going. Have you got one? Have you pictured your perfect ring walk and what your tune would be? It's not just a, a tribute to David Hay, but ain't no stopping us now with David and before him, Hector Macho Camacho. Might have been Larry Holmes. That was a classic. You know, that was one of those that when you heard it, you wanted to get up and dance and move and and, and and it pumped you up. I mean, there's, you know, there's so many different ring walks out there. You know, Canelo's latest ring walk uh, was amazing, was amazing. You know, now with, with all the pyrotechnic and everything, but going back to that old school, again, I'm from the 80s growing up watching. I mean, I'm from earlier than that, but watching boxing, Ain't no stopping us now. That's oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing such uh, great stories, great wisdom. Thanks for joining the club. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. An honor for me. Thank you. It's been so long, George. I wish you all the best. Hope to see you guys soon. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. All the best. Keep going. Let's go. How about that then, Deck? How about Robert Diaz? We have a matchmaker in the club, George. Yeah, I mean, which other podcasts will we be matched up against next? Uh, none of them stand a chance. We're already like, we're already the A-side. Our matchmaker has got merch. He's got proper George Groves vintage merch, like yes. original stuff. He's got OGGG merch. Yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> well, he is now, of course, Deck, an elite club member. Do you know... Who else could become an elite club member? Absolutely everyone listening to this pod right now because all they've got to do is hit the follow button in their podcast app. Open the app, hit the follow button. You will become an elite club member. What about George? That's fine. That's great. Hit the follow button. But what if they have listened to that episode, listened to all our other episodes and they're like, they've got something they need to ask. They've just got something on their chest. They're desperate to get it off the chest. How could they get in touch with us? How can they... Uh, chuck your question hit us up on the socials gg boxing club instagram twitter tiktok boom fire us a question fire us a joke a poem uh, a sonnet like i said but back out on the streets pounding the streets on my, in my running shoes need some tunes got any ideas there's this thing called spotify shout out spotify right on spotify we have a playlist it's called the ring walk if adverts have been getting you down i've got a solution and that is amazon music yes ad free you can listen to us on amazon music so yeah you got you got options there or if you like the adverts keep them in jack we are back next monday we are back on monday because we're looking ahead to one of the most intriguing heavyweight rematches in recent years big juggernaut joe joyce who got his eye boxed into his skull in the first fight by gelé zhang attempts to avoid that in the rematch so yeah we thought how about that monday morning We'll be uh, we'll be discussing looking ahead to that fight. So have a wonderful day. I'll see you then. Mm -hmm.